Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today's episode is a topic that I think is getting a lot more information, a lot more spotlight in the last little while. I think it's hugely important that we do talk about it and this is going to come at it from a similar angle to what you see in the press and the media and stuff but it's also going to come from a little bit more of a nutrition lifestyle and there's also an element of PCOS and endometriosis brought in with it as well. So today's topic is with the amazing Ali Cunningham. So Ali is a qualified dietitian and since qualifying Ali has worked in a range of areas in Irish hospitals including nutritional support, oncology, weight management, diabetes and cardiac rehabilitation. Ali has extensive experience working with people with PCOS and subfertility and contributed to the National Clinical Guidelines for Nutrition and Pregnancy as well. She's also completed training in behaviour change, the low FODMAP diet, fertility, PCOS and RFID. And Ali works with the DNC and offers clinic hours on Wednesday, Thursdays and Fridays. So if you're interested in working with Ali, I'm going to put in her email address and put in the, the dnc.ie website as well for you if you want to work with her. But today's episode is can be a raw topic for an awful lot of people, unfortunately. And I've seen that from experience of working with clients who are going through, the, through this. And the, the, the topics that we're going to talk about is in relation to the element of fertility. So we talk about what male and female should should use when trying to conceive. When is the best time to try? Is there a particular window? The role that stress plays in fertility and how to actually manage it. We're going to talk about the role of caffeine and alcohol and should they be included or should they be avoided completely? Is there danger in the dose? Whatever it may be. The real big thing about coming off the pill and the strategy and how that can implement and apply to how long it takes to come back. Does it, is there anything that can be done to actually speed up the process? We talk about the nutritional support. We talk about the supplemental support. We talk about the emotional physiological barriers to pregnancy, which I think more and more people are talking about. And I think it's hugely important that people do realize that there are certain sentences and comments that maybe aren't very helpful for an awful lot of people. And then we talk about PCOS and endometriosis and what they mean for pregnancy and what can be done. So I know there's quite a lot in this episode and there could be solo episodes, there could be bulk episodes on each particular topic. But Ali and I had a, had a great conversation, so I really hope you've enjoyed the episode with Ali Cunningham. Ali, how are we? I'm great, thanks, Shane. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I know when I had Orla on and I had Maeve on, they were like, get Ali on. So I was like, I, I better do it now. But thanks, I look forward to um, for today. So for anyone who isn't aware of who Ali Cunningham is, can you give us a little bit of a, a, a hello and what's your name? Where did you come from? Yeah, um, absolutely. So yeah, hi, my name is Ali and uh, I am a Dublin-based dietitian and the Dublin dietitian on Instagram as it happens. Um, But I started off my dietetics career working in a maternity hospital. So naturally got a big interest in fertility and pregnancy nutrition. And um, more recently, in the last year, I've gone to private work, which I'm really loving. So I'm working in the Dublin Nutrition Centre there, seeing a lot of fertility and but also a lot of disordered eating and eating disorders there too, which I really, really like. And sometimes those two things come together too. So it's it's a really nice post there. Yeah, and I I think the the rise of eating disorders has definitely been heightened over kind of like that weird time of COVID that we had. It just seemed to go next level. 
Absolutely. Unfortunately so. And like even, you know, it's it's quite sad. Like we've seen um, data come out from some of the children's hospitals, you know, um, reporting an increased admission for eating disorders and that. Um, and I suppose like COVID was a funny time because we had lost control, you know, and so sometimes we look and we control food or we overexercise to, you know, give us a sense of control. And unfortunately, that's contributed to the increase in eating disorders and disordered eating, um, not to mention the, the social media, like pressures and everything as well. Yeah, that, it's not, and I think it was, it was, it rose up quite significantly once males as well. I think males yes. kind of, and I'm not trying to make a gender argument here. I'm not trying to be that person. Uh-huh. I think sometimes people f- can forget that it affects all genders, all def- different sexual orientations. 100%. And you'd hope that maybe it's a case of men being a little bit more comfortable to, you know, seek help. Um, I think that's been a big problem in the past that, uh, you know, men aren't as quick to come forward for the support. But we are starting to see it a little bit more in clinic, which is great that they're that they're coming forward now. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just having that kind of like it's the first, just that first introduction, a first meeting, and then it's kind of like just the, t- the taboo almost breaks yeah. down. Yeah. Um, and I know today is going to be a can be sometimes a difficult topic for some people to hear about. And I've kind of talked about it a little bit on the the podcast before, but I think it's something so kind of out there that a lot of people are unfortunately are struggling with, which is the area of kind of fertility and con- and conceiving and and pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and I know, I know a lot of people are, are struggling themselves with it. So I think that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to bring that topic on. So I think the first question is in relation to the area of fertility, because it takes two to tango. Yeah, certainly. And I think sometimes people forget that. Um, what could, what should people do kind of nutritionally for both the male and a female perspective in relation to trying to conceive? Because I think a lot of focus can be sometimes put too much pressures on the, the female, but the male has to play his part too. Yeah, and I always love when I see both people in clinic too. I'm like, oh, well done. You guys are are really putting the heads down. Um, So I suppose it's really important that we first of all talk about timing. So, you know, if you're thinking about planning a pregnancy or starting to try to conceive like three to six months before you want to try to optimize your nutrition and that can help to increase your fertility and it can improve pregnancy outcomes and also give your child the best start in life in terms of their health outcomes. So we know that like what a woman eats in pregnancy can influence a child's lifelong health. So, for example, like reduce their chance of, you know, type two diabetes or obesity. And so really, really important from, you know, ideally six months before all the way through pregnancy that we're really zoning in on nutrition. Um, the reason why we say three to six months is because um, sperm takes about three months to be produced. So really, the man's sperm reflects the diet and lifestyle of, of the previous three months. And actually, it's amazing. You can see huge changes in all of, you know, sperm count, sperm shape, um, all of those markers we look at for quality. And then when it comes to the egg, obviously women are born with their eggs, but the maturation process of an egg is about three to four months. And during that kind of three to four month window for both egg and sperm, they're really susceptible to damage. Um, So the DNA can be damaged by inflammation and oxidative stress in the body. And, you know, diet can either help or hinder that situation. Um, the other reason, I suppose, is we need good diet for 
our hormone function. And then obviously it's the building blocks for DNA and for, you know, um, the eggs and the cells and sperm and that too. So timing's really, really important. Um, and then I suppose the most common thing probably we start with in clinic is like, are they eating enough? So definitely eating your, you know, your your regular meals. So that will help to ensure we get all of the energy, protein and fats that we need, the vitamins, the minerals, um, but also help to regulate our blood glucose levels. So our blood glucose levels and our insulin sensitivity is really related to our hormone function and ovulation for women as well. Um, so maintaining kind of regular blood glucose levels can be really important for hormone health, say. Um, so say that would be seen in women with PCOS where high levels of insulin is positively correlated with high levels of the male hormone testosterone um, and that can you know lead to issues in ovulation um, and make it more difficult to get pregnant so uh, a little bit of a, a tangent there but kind of uh, you know regulating your blood glucose through the three main meals and they should be balanced meals and then most people will need snacks in between too to make sure they're getting what they need um, and then I suppose if we look at those meals and what should be in those meals. Um, I usually would base my advice on two major dietary patterns that have been linked with fertility. So the Mediterranean diet, um, which is one I think a lot of people are familiar with, and it has so many health benefits, you know, from heart disease to mental health, but also with fertility. So the med diet is high in fruit and vegetables, whole grain carbohydrate foods, um, nuts, pulses, seeds, herbs and spices. And then it's quite low in, say, red and processed meats and also refined sugars. So the Mediterranean diet has been linked to an increased chance of conception. And it's also also been shown to support um, like assisted reproductive therapy. So like, you know, IVF and that. Um, and then the second kind of diet that's that's out there a lot is called the pro-fertility diet. And that is closely linked to reducing um, ovulatory disorders. Um, so what that is, is it is rich in plant proteins, interestingly, um, low glycemic index carbohydrates. And we can have a chat a bit more about what they are um, fiber, whole dairy. Um, and then it's kind of monounsaturated fatty acids and kind of lower in trans and saturated fats. So I usually try to combine those in clinic depending on the person just individualizing things and um, base the meals on that so I don't know if you want me to launch into what's what's on those plates Shane or if you have any questions on all that well, I first think, so I think the big one that you mentioned there like both of those kind of think think the included carbohydrates and I think yes. for a lot of people carbohydrates is a fear around and yeah. I think it's important to discuss how much of a role carbohydrates comes to when ovulation and menstrual cycle health like the importance of that because if you don't ovulate not much is going to happen exactly exactly so like i spoke about you know maintaining you know regular blue blood glucose levels and it's carbohydrate foods that break down to glucose um you know whether we've got like starchy carbohydrates bread rice pasta potatoes we've got fruit milk and yogurt and then we've got also the free sugars like um chocolate honey sweets that sort of thing um and we need carbohydrate like carbohydrate is like fuel for the body and we 
can't expect our body to produce healthy sperm or to grow a baby if we're not running on any fuel, you know, if we're running on empty, I suppose. So like cutting out your carbs can be really detrimental to fertility. And not to mention, you probably won't have any sex drive. You'll be angry, irritated. Like it's just, you know, I, I would never really recommend that in clinic. I'm definitely not for someone who's trying to conceive so, you know, for most of us, like about a quarter of a plate per meal would be adequate in terms of the starchy carbs. OK, um, so whether that's like your bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, sweet potato um, and, you know, more if people are active. So if people are going to the gym a lot or they're running, you know, they will need more to support that. Um, and then they might need like carbohydrate based snacks. The other thing that's important is the type of carbohydrate we choose. So both the Mediterranean diet and the pro-fertility diet feature low glycemic index carbohydrates or low GI carbs. So what these are is they're carbohydrates that are high in fiber and low in added sugar. So we're looking at like whole grain breads, whole grain cereals, oats, um, brown or basmati rice, um, newer baby potatoes, sweet potatoes, those sort of foods. and the magic there is in the fiber because fiber really slows down the breakdown of a carbohydrate. So if you imagine the glucose or the sugar drips really slowly into the bloodstream and that makes our blood glucose more regular over a longer amount of time. Whereas if we look at like higher GI foods, like maybe, you know, loads of like sugar or, you know, we're having fizzy drinks and like maybe a really large portion of carbohydrate, we can get spikes in our blood glucose and in our insulin. And as we know, you know, that's that's not beneficial for our fertility. So we probably do want to keep the free sugars to a minimum. Um, you know, the likes of, say, the, the fizzy drinks in particular have been linked to, you know, poor semen quality and um lower chance of fertility um but it's it's not to say you can never have them and that's something i always say mm -hmm. like that comes with its own problems you know and we see that sometimes you know like for example in hypothalamic amenorrhea like that's ha where a, a woman loses her period um, and it's often due to over restriction of food so actually sometimes those free sugars are a really key part of their recovery and a key part of their fertility so for for kind of general advice yeah go for the whole grain ones keep your free sugars to moderation but that doesn't apply to everybody i suppose <laughs> I remember was there there was a myth when I was growing up about a certain fizzy drink. I think it's off the market as of about three okay. weeks. Ago. I think it was it was a lilt. About oh uh, yeah, is that gone? Yeah. They went like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five oh. weeks. Ago. It went recently anyway, and it was kind of the rumor was that if you drank too much of it, your sperm count would go down. No, I never ever heard. What was it on Sunny Sunny D? I'm gonna get sued. Really? I'm gonna get sued here. Sunny Sunny oh. D would turn you orange if you drank too much of it. I actually that that was definitely a rumor around my school as well. Actually, yeah. yeah. The Lilt one was the big one um, okay. when I was growing up, but I think Lilt is officially gone now. Interesting. Uh, but it's interesting because you mentioned the fizzy drinks there. And what about kind of the role of kind of alcohol and caffeine? Because we everyone loves caffeine, yeah, and a lot yeah. of people like to have a social life. I hate when people ask me about this. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be, you don't no, want to be, yeah, yeah. Um, no, you don't want to no, be no, that. Totally, like, um, you know, as much as possible, I try to take a balanced approach with people. Like, you know, myself, love coffee, love a glass of wine on the weekend, you know, and and it's hard to tell someone to go off that stuff. But we'll, we'll start with the caffeine. Um, excess levels of caffeine have been linked with longer time to conception and pregnancy loss, 
Now, there is a limit that is suggested in the guidelines, and that's 200 milligrams of caffeine. So what that looks like, it might be like one coffee from, you know, a coffee shop, like a freshly brewed coffee. Um, they can be quite strong. And sometimes I think from barista to barista, like it can be over that 200. Um, so, you know, maybe going for a single shot might be the way to go there. Or if you're at home, like two instant coffees would be within the limit um, or about four cups of caffeinated or green tea. Um, and then I suppose like after that, you're probably recommending decaf varieties of coffee or tea or herbal teas like um, like peppermint or chamomile or those sorts of teas. Um, and I suppose just thinking about other sources of caffeine in the diet, like obviously, you know, there's the obvious ones like monsters and Red Bulls, and they definitely wouldn't be advising those if you're trying to conceive. Um, but other sources might be like chocolate, fizzy drinks, actually medications. So just trying to be mindful of those two. Um, and then I suppose when it comes to the alcohol, like the advice is for both partners to completely abstain if possible. Okay, so that is in an ideal world. But like you'll have some couples who unfortunately are trying for like a really, really long time. And I suppose alcohol, the reason why it's not recommended is it is linked to a higher risk of miscarriage. Um, and then during pregnancy, I suppose it, it's teratogenic, which means it can cause abnormalities in the fetus. And, you know, at excess levels, it can lead to something called fetal alcohol syndrome. And that may be like, you know, abnormalities, like physical abnormalities in a fetus, um, but also learning and behavioral issues. But I, I suppose I, I just want to note that like if it's that couple who are trying for so long and your brother's getting married and it's like, well, God, is that glass of champagne to yeah. celebrate with them? Is it going to help or hinder, you know, like it, it might give you the stress release that you need, you know, so it's really individual here. But, you know, if you can't abstain, maybe reduce or, or try to stick to the safe guidelines or that, you know, um, I think we all love a drink, but definitely paying attention to our alcohol intake is important. So I remember doing the my nutrition course and then doing the pre and postnatal training and nutrition uh search as well and i was like there's so much for these people to to remember yeah and i could see where the extra stress comes from because you're kind of like can't have this food can't have this food can't have this food it's like what food can you have I know, I know. And that's what I do try to focus on in clinic, you know, like say back to, you know, our kind of med diet or fertility diet. There's lots of what you are trying to have more of. Yeah. Like, for example, for a lot of us, like plant proteins might not be something we're including and they are more closely linked with fertility and actually a lower risk of ovulatory disorders. So it's like instead of being like, now you can't have red processed meats or you know I'm like okay well what about we do like a plant-based day in the week or what about for lunchtime we try to have a plant-based protein you know tofu tempeh beans lentils chickpeas soy foods and um, you know or seafood like that is like a magic one when it comes to fertility like all of the evidence consistently says you know seafood is really closely linked with increased chance of conception in both men and women and um, so trying to include seafood like two or three times per week maybe more um, and two of those being oily fish so like salmon trout mackerel sardines um, and then our white fish then as well like that's a brilliant source of iodine and I think iodine is one maybe we don't talk about enough um, it's really critical for thyroid hormones and our thyroid hormones control our metabolism so they are really key for fertility and every function in the body almost um, but at either 
levels that are too high or too low, you know, it can be linked to difficulties conceiving. So it's really important that we're kind of mindful of that. And it's something that I often tell people, you know, get your get your thyroid levels checked. Um, because, you know, if they are off, people can be more inclined to miscarry, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I suppose just going back to the iodine, you know, and again, what can I include? The white fish, the seafood, um, like plant-based milks are sometimes fortified. Um, but I've noticed some of them are, are not including it and then obviously sorry your your cow's milk and, and dairy products they're a fantastic source um and then seaweed seaweed's one maybe like it can be excessive actually and you know too much thyroid hormone isn't good either so you know maybe not more than once a week but yeah on the whole i would try to focus a little bit more on you know more of things rather than excluding everything you know I think that goes for everyone's walk of life. I think it doesn't matter what stage you are. I think too many people are too quick. And I see it every day with clients that they try to take out things out of their diet. Yeah. You know, like, now, as as Ali has said, is add things into your week or make it make your lunch plant-based or add more plants in once a week and lead by example with the rest yeah. of the family or whatever it is. Because okay. we pick up our habits and tips for our nutrition from whoever raised us. So it's... Okay. Um, it's interesting you say that we're doing um, like a fussy eating kind of webinar on Thursday and like we're trying to like make parents think of themselves as teachers like we're like actually like eating is a learned behavior Um, so you know what you're doing at the table is really important for someone who maybe has other kids like that yeah and I think it's really really important and I know sometimes supplements can be recommended and I think the yeah. supplemented diet it shouldn't be the diet well, so I think it's what kind of ones could you kind of recommend or are there different are there different ones for for the genders yeah so uh, well most of the i suppose most of the preconception multivits are similar in terms of brand and the ones for males and females will be slightly different because certain nutrients might be you know more important for sperm health or you know egg health um but i suppose the two major ones to mention would be like folic acid for women obviously so we recommend that all women of childbearing age so literally anyone who has their period should be taking a 400 microgram supplement of folic acid daily to reduce the risk of neural tube defects and um, so like spina bifida um, and I suppose some women will need a higher dose, like five milligrams. So that would be anybody with type one or type two diabetes. Um, you know, anyone with a body mass index over 30, I think that's missed a lot. Um, or maybe someone who has had a birth previously affected by a neural tube defect. Um, and like men too, like folate is important. That's a food form. So like it's in our dark green leafy veg, our chickpeas, strawberries. Um, like they do need to still think about folate, but they should be able to get enough from the diet. So folate is important for DNA synthesis. And um, so it's important for sperm production, but the women do need extra there. Um, and then I suppose if we look at vitamin D, definitely both sexes need that. So it's important for production of sex hormones. So for men and women, um, for sperm production, for egg health, for implantation, it's anti-inflammatory. I could go on about vitamin D all day. Um, but I suppose what we need is a supplement here because the main source is the sun. Uh, so when the sun hits our skin, we synthesize vitamin D. Um, but the issue is like living in Ireland, you know, the sun is too high in the sky in the extended winter months. So we usually say from Halloween to Paddy's Day and the FSI have just um, put out new guidelines about that. So, you know, they're recommending 15 microgram supplement for adults 
in those months. Um, but they actually do say that, say, pregnant women should take it all year round. Um, and the same actually for people who have darker skin or um, are very covered up or spend a lot of time inside. Um, but often when people are trying to conceive, I'll just get them to take that year round unless maybe they had high levels on a blood test or that. Um, so probably about over 75 uh, is the level that I try to aim for with people. And, you know, it's it's easy just to, to add that on to bloods in your GP. And, and what about stress? Because that's the other one. That's the other, the, the three S is stress, sleep. and Huge. Yeah, exactly. So like the stress is maybe one of the biggest barriers that we see to fertility. So, you know, first of all, like when we are stressed, our hormone cortisol, so our stress hormone rises. And the function of cortisol is basically to switch us into fight or flight mode, you know, and it's like, well, if we are running from a bear, like that's not going to be the ideal time to make a baby or, you know, to produce really top quality sperm. So our body down regulates those functions. And it's fine, like if we get a little bit stressed from time to time, but if we are chronically stressed, then that will impact fertility over, you know, a long amount of time. So thinking about how we're managing our stress and I think that's going to be different for everybody, you know, whether it's spending time outside, like hanging out with your dog, like, you know, meditation, yoga. For some people, it's sitting on the couch and watching Netflix and that's actually what they need. Um, you know, that you just have something daily-ish to manage your stress and it doesn't need to be an hour of meditation, just something small. Um, and I think, though, like stress can also take the form of over or under nutrition and um, excessive exercise like these are all stresses to our body and like that can be a real problem so um for example going back to ha that hypothalamic amenorrhea like that can be caused by three things so the lack of periods um one is not eating enough um two is over exercising and three is like psychological stress but to be honest, I think nine out of 10 times if we have ongoing missed periods, it's food or exercise. You know, yeah. we might skip one period because we've got loads going on and things yeah. are stressful. But nine out of 10 times it yeah. is, you know, we need to up our food, particularly fats and carbohydrates, or, you know, we need to actually reduce exercise. And that might be stress management for that person. Um, and I suppose that, that there is an equivalent for men. It's just a little bit harder to, I suppose you know, with women, a cycle is so obvious. But so what we say is less than five spontaneous erections a week in the morning um, is kind of a sign maybe that that you're not getting enough in. Um, so people might know that as like reds. So relative energy deficiency in sport as well for anyone who's who's very active. Uh, that's so much. And it's, it's really, really useful for, for kind of both sides of it as yeah. well. So like the, H, the HA thing is definitely kind of, it's been a hot topic for quite a while, unfortunately. And I think... Yeah. Uh, there's a great book if people are looking to kind of upscale no period now what yeah it's fantastic it's, and very, even it's very thick though yeah, it is it is thick but very i think book. if someone has ha they will be so you know, they'll be they'll be relating to it so much that they'll fly through it you know they'll be like oh my god this book is talking to me um but definitely i would recommend going and well definitely seeing your gp first to yeah. get a diagnosis of ha if you're missing your cycle for over three months um or three cycles over 45 days you should see your gp um and then uh, like i obviously am going to encourage you to see a dietitian for support as well um because it can be hard you know and 
people with HA often think like, oh, like I am meaning so much more than my friends to get my cycles back. Like this yeah. isn't fair, but like your body is individual, you know, and and really it can actually seem like a lot more food than you think you need. But, you know, it, it is what your body needs to get your cycles back. Yeah, I remember talking to Catherine Stewart about HA yeah, exactly. a good bit. Yeah. So that episode is really, really yeah. useful on that side of things because there can be sometimes a certain number that people are told to go for. Yeah. But sometimes it's... That might be the bare minimum as well. Yeah, you know? and like it's it's quite... Yeah, Especially yeah. where your head's coming from, especially if you have like an ED or anything like that. It's kind of like it's, you get so scared. Yeah, uh, exactly. You need that support. Support is a big, big thing that you do yeah. need along that any journey, but particularly that journey is kind of like having that kind of like voice of reason but also yeah. that supportive network to actually and reassurance on. as well yeah. you know i think that's that's a big part of it and like you know because when you go away and you do this by yourself it can just seem like oh no this definitely isn't right but like it is you know and yeah. it, is, it is it was like if you're not sure if you're eating too much food i'm like no no, no you're not <laughs> like it's yeah. anything catherine actually always says like if you're thinking about will i have it or won't i have it that means you have it we'll like have you it. know yeah exactly yeah um and what about kind of like is there a, b- a best protocol for someone that's coming off the pill obviously it depends on top of the type yeah. of the pill but and what it was like beforehand but yeah. is there kind of like a protocol that you kind of have in place yeah i suppose like when we come off the pill it can be normal for our cycles to be a little bit irregular for a short amount of time so yeah. um you know that first bleed when you stop the pill like that's not your natural period that is a withdrawal bleed um, and then the period that comes roughly four weeks later or that should come would be your natural period um but you know don't panic i think if the first one doesn't come it can be kind of normal and you know i think guidelines say give yourself about three months for your cycles to just re-establish themselves but you know as i said like the diagnostic criteria for say ha would be like no cycle for three months so often if you go to your gp at three months they'll be like oh come on like you know wait yeah. six wait 12 but I do think it's a good idea to go get the ball rolling, you know, and I'm thinking about, is there any cause for this? Like, you know, could it be, could it be stress? Could it be your weight? Like, are you underweight? Like, are you, you know, obese? Are you, um, you know, exercising too much? Um, And then also like, could it be a condition like PCOS? You know, one in 10 women have PCOS. Like it's really common. So like going to your GP and starting to look at those investigations, maybe get your bloods done and that. Um, yeah, and your periods should go back to normal, uh, all going well. Yeah, it's figuring out what it was like beforehand as well. Sometimes yeah. people don't even take what it was like beforehand. Was it a regular beforehand or was there PCOS elements yeah. of it there as well? What's really yeah. difficult is I think a lot of people go on the pill so young now that they're like, oh God, I like never knew what my natural yeah. cycle was like. Or like when we're teens, like our cycles can be a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, it is sometimes hard if people are on it for a long time to to think back, I suppose. Yeah, like it, it, it is kind of like another journey is, is kind of coming mm-hmm. off the pill particularly if you are it's trying to give yourself the best amount of time possible not just kind of like just go off and then this is going to happen it can take time and it's being prepared for that and it might not be the answer there may be people who are who are like unique and be able to conceive straight away but more often than not it's kind of like it can take a little bit longer 100 um and in relation to kind of is there a best time of the month for people to try to conceive uh i had ashley o'kelly aok nutrition on and she described it with if you don't if you have sex outside the window it's like having sex with a doorknob and that always, 
I was like, I don't, I don't have a, a comparison quite as good. <laughs> I like that. Um, okay, so like, yes, there is. Like, we, I suppose we we have what we call a fertile window. So you know, it is pretty much a myth that you can get pregnant anywhere in your cycle. So um, you know, a woman knowing when she ovulates is one of the most valuable pieces of information she can have when trying to conceive. So I suppose if we think about it, like the sperm will last for like it varies in the literature but about three to five days okay um and an egg can last kind of about again it varies but maybe 12 to 24 hours on average okay it can survive so that fertile window might be like five days before ovulation to maybe 24 hours after and they would be the only times in your cycle that you can get pregnant now again everyone's sperm is going to change and you know it's relying on that cervical mucus being really healthy to stay alive and that but you know that would be an average time um so if we're thinking about like well how do i know if i'm ovulating so for most people they will ovulate around day 10 to 16 um i usually don't recommend just going off an app because you know like you could ovulate day 16 and the app is telling you every time on day 12 that you're ovulating you know so we want to look out for physical signs of ovulation so in the kind of two to three days before ovulation your um, cervical discharge will start to change so I think a lot of people will have heard that kind of egg white consistency um, and and that's a sign that we're going to ovulate so having sex in that time you know maybe every day or every other day it doesn't need to be like three times a day unless you really want to um you know that's important um and then there are other ways we can look at our ovulation so some women will track their temperature so our temperature will rise just ever so slightly when we ovulate um but i suppose it's a good idea to look for the the, the mucus as well because you know by the time our temperature rises we've only really got the 24 hours for the egg to survive and we want to have been having sex regularly in the days before that um, but it can be really good for starting to track your cycle um, and then you can also use the little ovulation sticks um, but just important to note that they can be inaccurate with PCOS um, and obviously as I said a lot of women have PCOS um, and then also um, your cervical position as well changes but that's not one I see women use a lot because it can actually just be a bit tricky to figure out so you know I wouldn't wouldn't usually suggest that I'd probably go start with the cervical mucus maybe use the ovulation sticks I think that's really 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 great advice it's kind of picking up what what your body's doing for you rather than just going off an app and I think sometimes the apps are great as an educational tool but you'll know what's kind of normal for you and what kind of within range of where things are actually happening and that can take a little bit of time to get your head around particularly if as you said earlier on, if you've been on the pill for quite a long time, you don't know what ha- what is normal for you or you've never been taught what normal is for you. So it's about kind of getting your head around that as well. In relation to kind of the physiological kind of barriers to yeah. the things as well, because I think this is maybe one of the areas that isn't spoken about enough. I think it's definitely coming out a lot more, but it can feel like a taboo that people yeah. would like necessarily don't, are very skeptical about telling people that they're trying but once they try and before that 12 week period it's kind of like they don't talk about it that much can you talk about where can people actually get that support yes so so you kind of mean kind of the the emotional support isn't it yeah 
psychological support. Yeah, hundred percent. So, like, you know, it can really weigh in on your mental health. I think when you are trying to conceive, and like, even if we look at say conditions like anxiety and depression, like they can lead to a drop in libido or sex drive. Like, and it, it can you know work against you, I suppose. Um, and it is really important that you have you know maybe your own support network in terms of your partner. Hopefully, is someone that you you can really have a safe space to discuss everything with. But sometimes we do need extra support, you know, even further than than friends and family, you know, and I would say go to see your GP as the first port of call, but they may recommend, you know, going to see a therapist and, and kind of talking about that side of things. And it's just your space to talk about all of the emotional and, and psychological stress that comes with trying to conceive for many couples. Um, and actually, if you aren't in the position to pay privately like the state actually do have some free counseling services at the moment um available and your gp will be able to tell you about those um but definitely i do think if you're someone who you know like like infertility is defined as as failure to conceive after having sex regularly ideally timed around ovulation for more than 12 months and you know that 12 months can seem like an eternity to people you know all of their friends it seems like everybody's pregnant yeah. you know and that's all they see and like that really weighs in on people's mood on their you know their mental health um and and you know sometimes once they kind of take the foot off the pedal a bit or they do kind of relax or they go on holiday or you know that's the time they can see so the support can't be underestimated i think when it comes to fertility so also the pressure from family as well and kind of comments yeah. and that's yeah. you know parents yeah. can be like want to be grandparents so much and yeah it's 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 different i think it's just important to kind of feel supported maybe just go and talk to someone i think sometimes people think that they need to get to such a shit place before they can go to talk to someone but that's kind of like going to a dentist when you after you've lost yeah. your teeth it's kind yeah, of get your check really work. yeah 100 and i think probably anyone who knows me will be like i'm like the biggest advocate i'll talk to anybody yeah. with ears you know and yeah. like, i'm like talking is therapy it's so good um, no, but i think i think i think it's hugely important that people do have some like people may not be fortunate to have such a support network around them but that yeah. doesn't mean you can't go and look at the resources you mentioned there uh, from the state and stuff but it's also I can only imagine it can be quite hard to after that 12 months to have that label attached to yourself yeah 100% and they're, they're I suppose they're using kind of subfertility a lot more in, in medical terms these days and that might be kind of like you know it's not quite got to that 12 month mark but it's like you know often people are just given a diagnosis of like you know um like no reason for infertility I suppose you know and it's like oh well where do I go from here you know and it can be so distressing for people but I think like there are so many options now you know and medicine is like incredible and you know I've I've seen people go through the longest journeys and at the end of the day you know they walk into the office with a baby and they're delighted and like you know there are ways now like there really is amazing there are amazing things that they can do um in that fertility space Amazing. I think the the one the kind of the two, one or two of the topics that we were kind of talking about a little bit is is PCOS and I think endometriosis. I think we were talking a little bit off air about it. Um, yeah. If you will start off with PCOS because it's the, the it's the one that is out there an awful lot more with the information and people have more access to that side of yeah. things. What does PCOS mean 
about around pregnancy can you get pregnant with it what are the options or absolutely absolutely you can get pregnant with pcos and like my heart breaks when i have someone you know with a new pcos diagnosis and they're like oh i was just told that i can't have babies or whatever it is now and that's that's unlikely a doctor that might be google you know like it's like the first thing people do is they'll like google what they have and it's like probably the first thing comes up is like, oh, like struggles with infertility. But I've had so many people with PCOS regulate their cycles and get pregnant. Um, So I suppose polycystic ovary syndrome, as you said, one in 10 women have it. And, you know, how you might know you have it. So you might have like irregular or missing cycles. You might have high levels of male hormones on a blood test or symptoms of that. So say like excess hair growth or like male um, pattern balding or like acne um like carb cravings are really common and like really strong sugar cravings um and then the other the third criteria is like it they look like polycystic ovaries but they're not actually cysts but anyway on an ultrasound so you'd obviously need to have gone to the doctor for that so two of those three things will diagnose pcos so like i know uh, a colleague of mine used to always be like you go diagnose it as a bus stop like um you know if someone has all the excess hair yeah. and the acne and like the missing cycles it's like well that is a pcos diagnosis and um, would definitely go to see your gp and then go to see a gynecologist as well and um, because you do need support so the first line of treatment for pcos is diet and lifestyle and there's actually so much we can do in terms of diet and lifestyle so as i said like our our blood glucose levels are so closely intertwined with ovulation and with our hormone function. So our goal, first and foremost, is usually regulating our blood glucose levels. So not having these big like highs in the day and, and where we get an increase in insulin and that leads to, you know, fat storage and it leads to higher like male hormones and that. And then, you know, these really severe drops in blood glucose levels where like the person feels like awful and God, their cravings are so strong. They could swap their boyfriend for bread or chocolate. Like they, you know, they, they really can struggle with that. So what we try to do is usually, you know, we might start somewhere with like a low glycemic load diet to help to try to regulate the blood sugars a little bit. Um, and that can be helpful regulating cycles. And, and then there's loads of dietary components that we look at now obviously you can't go through them all in the next whatever 10 minutes but um you know there are there are loads of of dietary strategies but then also we've got supplements and there's really good evidence around supplements in pcos so like there is they're probably like 10 supplements that would be my go-tos with pcos but you know one of my favorites say that has some of the best evidence around it would be inositol um and actually the evidence shows that inositol can be as effective as a medication called metformin in regulating cycles and inducing ovulation and i'm like that's really cool like you know because metformin it's fantastic but it can have some side effects like people can have a really bad stomach with it whereas i find you know with the inositol they don't um but so important go and talk to your dietitian or your gp or your you know before you start any supplements you know don't just go off and buy this um because there is a particular type as well that that we would be recommending um yeah so there's loads we can do with pcos and you know usually if we don't get there with diet and lifestyle and you know we look at medication and there are medications that can help too so there's loads we can do 
Um, and then with the endo side of it, I think we were we were saying just before we went on air, like it's so individual. So endometriosis can be on such a spectrum, like it can be really severe and take over a woman's life and it can cause issues for fertility. Um, but equally, it can be quite mild. Like I had a lady in my clinic like a few weeks ago and she's like four children in and she's like, Oh, the doctor told me of endometriosis you know she didn't even know like so it can really be so different and actually she was coming to me for like gut issues okay. so you know it's not always the reproductive organs you know um that are effective but if people have severe endo like they should be seeing their gp their gynae and actually the gold standard of diagnosis is like a little operation i suppose um and they can remove the endo in there and then people you know some people have a really positive um result and you know everything kind of you know feels better for them and then for some people you know it takes some management after surgery or follow up or that so it's so individual but it you know having a diagnosis of endo like it doesn't mean you can't conceive yeah i think it's about having that once again that support network around you and i think sometimes if your gp may not be up to a certain level that you're not happy with don't be afraid to go somewhere else because each gp each doctor each person will have an individual approach but also the education's kind of like being ramped up on them now yeah Um, and i think the system's improving it has a long way to go but it is improving yeah yeah i'm sorry if if you think of like gps like they have so much they have to know. Oh, yeah. so like, you know, it, it's likely that like, you know, even if you think your GP might not be the best person to go for HA or PCOS, like they might be exactly who you'd want if you got a diabetes diagnosis, you know? So it's like, it's just kind of remembering that they might have a special interest and maybe you could ask them like, you know, if they have someone who specializes in this area, you know, and most GPs are okay to do that. Um, you know, you've got to advocate for yourself, I think. Yeah, some yeah, I think some yeah, because I think there's kind of a fine line between going down Dr. Google and diagnosing yourself yes. and then <laughs> yes, going to Doctor, I haven't got a clue. Um, mm-hmm. so it's somewhere in the the middle there somewhere as well. But I think it's it's important to feel safe where you're having those discussions. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Mayo and Ostop, or you mentioned an Ostolite put in the Mayo. Um, but there's there's new research coming out with like it's a mixture of Cairo and Mayo, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, usually in a forty to one ratio is what we would recommend, and the studies with the, I suppose the the Mayo inositol to the Cairo inositol sounds very mighty. Uh, they really seem to be coming out on top in terms of PCOS. Um, but yeah, like that, I probably would wouldn't just go out and just yeah, it wouldn't go sore by take it all and and that. But yeah, to to talk to you know a healthcare professional who who has experience in this stuff. Yeah, I think it's it's important that you do, and um, and there's there's so much in there. Like I've yeah. written notes and notes and notes, so there's so much in there for people. I think it's important that the the big thing that I've learned from this is the the importance of the support from the people around you, but also reaching out to professionals that can help you. So Ali, where can people work with you and where can people find out about your work? Um, so probably the best place to get me is on Instagram. So I'm at the Dublin Dietitian and I work at the Dublin Nutrition Centre. So that is in Pem- on Pembroke Street in Dublin. And uh, we've got a great team of dietitians there who work with, you know, actually like anyone and everyone between us all. So from fertility to pregnancy to, you know, eating disorders, PCOS. So, you know, I suppose we've, we've got a fantastic team in there and, and you can get us on like giving, giving us a Google search as probably the best thing that the Dublin Nutrition Centre. Awesome. And you have got a mega team because I've had a lot of them on. Absolutely. 
so uh, thank you so much for coming on thanks so much Shane it's been great thank you massive thank you to Ali for coming on to the podcast and sharing some really really useful insights on the area of fertility pregnancy supplementation nutrition stress alcohol caffeine so if you enjoyed that episode at all please do tag Ali and I up on your stories if you are interested in working with myself click on the link in the show notes and we can book in a free call and if you want to work with Ali there is a link there for you as well so if you've enjoyed this episode leave a review tag share whatever it may be and support the podcast as much as you can so thank you so much for listening to the episode with Ali Cunningham